you, Paul, for that ministry of music. This morning is Palm Sunday, of course, a time in which we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But today we are going to focus not on his primary or his triumphal entry, but rather his triumphal entrance, uh, exit. There is no reference to the triumphal entry in the book of John. Uh, but the passage that we are in actually does take place within Passion Week. It is after the triumphal entry. It's just before the events of Good Friday. Jesus, of course, is going to be departing this world. As he does, he has great concern for the apostles that are going to be left behind, that are going to remain after he leaves. He's concerned about their relationship to the world. The word world appears 17 times in 13 verses in this chapter. 17 times in 13 verses. So it really is centering upon the disciples' relationship to the world. This morning, then, we're going to focus our attention on what the disciples' relationship to the world was and is to be so that we might understand what our relationship to the world is and ought to be as well. There are a series of prepositions that are found in our text that are helpful in understanding our relationship to the world. We read in these verses that first, that they were out of the world, secondly, yet in the world, but not of the world, but sent into the world. Now, we want to unpack those things this morning. First, what is the relationship to the disciples to the world? Well, the answer first is the disciples were given to Jesus out of the world. They are brought into a unique relationship to the triune God that the world does not enjoy. Notice verse 6. The disciples were chosen out of the world by the Father. I manifested thy name to men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Now, we are to see in that statement that the disciples were a part of the peoples of this world. They dwelt here on this earth. And they were selected from or out of the peoples of this world to enter into a unique relationship with a triune God. So as a result of their being selected or chosen out of the people of the world, they have a unique relationship to the triune God that's described in the following fashion. First, that unique relationship to God included being instructed concerning the person of God. Verse 6. I manifested thine name to the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. So these apostles had the unique advantage, benefit, privilege, of being instructed concerning the person of God. That's what is meant by his name, his character, his person. Jesus taught these men about the person of the triune God that the world 
was not privy to. Secondly, thy unique relationship belong being blessed to receive the word of God. Verse 7. Now these have come to know that everything thou hast given me is from, from thee, for the words which thou gavest me I have given to them. So the second unique blessing was that they had the word of God. The word of God. Jesus taught them things that the world was not taught. Jesus was explained to them things that the world did not receive the explanation. For example, many of the parables were privately explained to the apostles, but not to the crowds. They uniquely were given the word of God. Third, that unique relationship included understanding and faith that comes as a result of hearing the word of God. Verse 8. For the words which thou gavest me I have given to them, and they received them, and understood that I came forth from thee, and they believed that thou didst send me. So, this unique relationship was one of belief and trust and confidence in Jesus as to who he was, what he said, what he did. They had faith. And in that, they were distinct from the people of the world. Fourthly, that unique relationship included being the benefactors of Jesus' intercessory prayers. Verse 9. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. That's a powerful, powerful verse. I pray for them. I pray not for the world. Jesus interceded for them in which in a way in which Jesus did not intercede for people who do not know him as Lord and Savior. The same is true today. Jesus intercedes for us in ways in which he does not intercede for people who don't know him as Lord and Savior. That is sobering. That is sobering. In the book of Romans, we read in chapter 8 that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us according to the will of the Father. That us is easy, if we're not careful, to be made into, well, the world or whoever reads this particular verse of Scripture. But the us are the people of God. Jesus intercedes for us uniquely. And the reason for that is number five. The unique relationship included belonging to God. Verse nine. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. Why? But of those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. They belong to you. They belong to you. The world doesn't. What a privilege and joy we have in belonging to God. In being his sons. John 1.12 But as many as received him, to them gave he power or authority to become the children of God. The children of God. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, you are a child of God. You have a unique relationship to God. A relationship that is different from people who do not know the Lord as their Savior. A relationship that is filled with blessing and privilege that those who do not know the Lord as their Savior do not experience, do not know, do not understand. 
So that if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, you live in a precarious situation. And you are missing out on a lot. For Christ intercedes on behalf of his own. We're to be comforted and knowing that he intercedes for us. This was intended to be an encouragement to the disciples. And it ought to be an encouragement to us. We are unique in our relationship to God. How blessed we are. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, I'd encourage you to place your faith and trust in him that you might know the blessedness that is found only for those who have this relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, what is the relationship of the disciples to the world? The disciples will continue to remain in the world. Jesus is departing the world to go to the Father. Verse 11. And I am no more in the world. He's talking about physically leaving this planet. He is going away. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to be buried and put in a tomb. He's going to rise from the dead. And he's going to ascend to be at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. He's leaving this earth. But they're staying behind. Verse 11. Uh, uh, but he's leaving them behind. And I'm no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. We're still here. Jesus is gone. The apostles would still be there. Jesus is gone. So, he's leaving the world, but they are remaining in the world. Verse 11, I am no more in the world, yet they themselves are in the world. Jesus had said previously that as long as they are in the world, they are going to know trouble and tribulation. John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace in this world. You will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. You're going to have trouble. In this world. As long as we're on this planet. Before the Lord Jesus Christ returns. It's going to be difficult. While Jesus was in the world. While he was alive. While he was ministering to them. Jesus guarded and protected them. Notice verse 12. While I was with them. I was keeping them in thy name. Which thou gavest me. I guarded them. And not one of them perished. But the son of perdition, that the scripture might be filled. Not one of the apostles was lost, except for Judas. And that was in fulfillment of the word of God. That was not a blown assignment on the part of Jesus. That was not somehow evil conquering good. It was understood from the beginning that Judas would betray Jesus. And he lost not one of them. Now that Jesus is leaving, he entrusts the care of the disciples to the Father. Verse 11. I'm no more in the world, and they themselves are in the world, and I come to thee. Now, that is a literal coming to you. That is not simply a euphemism for prayer. Sometimes we talk about coming to the Lord in prayer, which is fine. But this is not what Jesus is saying. 
He's not saying, now I'm coming to you in prayer. He's saying, I'm coming to you. Literally. He's going to be with the Father. And so, he has this request. And I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me. It's striking. Jesus refers to God the Father in this verse as Holy Father. It's the only place where Jesus refers to him as the Holy Father. Later he's going to refer to him as the Righteous Father. But the the Holy Father or the Righteous Father. In so doing, he is referring to the Father as one who is reliable, trustworthy, responsible. A God who keeps his word. He's saying to him, I can trust you. And I'm turning these men back over to you. You entrusted them to my care while I was here on the earth. Now I'm gone, and I am turning their care back to you. And the reason he does is that they belong to the Father. Verse 9. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. They belong to you. So you watch over them and you protect them. And then verse 13. Jesus entrusts them to the care of the Father so that they may experience joy. But now I come to thee, these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. The joy of a relationship with the Father and belong with the Father. So, they are being entrusted to the Father's care. They are remaining in the world under the care of the Father. Now, let me give you an, an illustration. doesn't walk on all fours. leaves something to be desired. But yet, communicates a certain level of truth. Think about parents who are going away. Going on a trip. Maybe out of town, maybe out of the country. And they have children that love them, that are dependent upon them. They have cared for their children. They have provided for their children. They have guarded their children. They have protected their children. They have instructed their children. Their children love them, and they're going away. What are they going to do? Well, many times, grandparents are called upon to care for those children. They are entrusted by the parents to the grandparents. Why? Well, first of all, because the parents trust the grandparents. They know them. They've been brought up by them. They rely upon them. They see them as trustworthy, responsible. They'll take care. They won't neglect Their responsibility. They are the holy father. They're the righteous father. They are the dependable grandparents. And not only are they entrusted to their care because the grandparents love them and are reliable, but they're entrusted to their, their grandparents because they belong to them. They are part of the family. That they are every bit as much of a part of that family as the children were 
to their parents. They belong to them. That's what Jesus says. For they belong to you. They are yours. Just as the grandchildren belong to the grandparents. With the intent, and here's the added benefit, that when the parents go away, not only are these children going to be watched over, not only are they going to be protected by somebody who's reliable and trustworthy, not only are they going to be entrusted to the care of somebody that the parents know well and have full confidence in, not only are they going to be entrusted to the parents because they belong to them and they're part of the family, but it is also hoped that as a result, the grandchildren will draw closer to the grandparents. That they would get to know them better. That they would learn to appreciate them. Jesus uses the word so that they may receive within themselves the joy that I have. So that the grandchildren will come to appreciate and love the grandparents every bit as much as the parents learn to appreciate their parents. They want them to know them. One of the great blessings, one of the great blessings of having grandchildren when you're young is that you get to spend time with them. You get to know them. And if you have wonderful parents, you want your grandchildren to know them. You want them to appreciate them. I wish very much that my grandchildren would have known my parents. I wish they could have experienced that. I love my parents. I think they would have been a great influence upon them. They've been a great help to them. I would have liked them to experience some of the joy that I had with my parents. Jesus says, I'm going away. But I'm entrusting you to the care of my Father. He's a righteous Father. He's a holy Father. He's a reliable Father. He's your Father. You belong to Him. And I want you to know the joy of what it's like to be under my Father's care. Even as I have known, Jesus says, the joy of being under my Heavenly Father's care. He who watched over me in this world will watch over you in this world when I'm gone. That's that second thought. Thirdly, what is the relationship of the disciples to the world? Well, we've seen they're chosen out of the world, but they remain in the world. But now we find out that they are not of the world. So, the disciples are different from the world, and the world hates them because of that difference. Verse 14. The world hates the disciples. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them. And the world hates them because of their commitment to the world. Verse 14. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. What makes them different from the world is the word of God. Look at verse 8. For the words which thou gavest me, I have given them, and they received them, and understood truly that I came forth from thee, they believed that thou didst send me. That's what makes them different from the world. They had this word, 
And they believed it. They trusted it. They accepted it. And that made them different from the world. The world hated them. It is their commitment to the word that makes them different from the world. Look at verse 14. I've given them thy word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now that's a rather striking statement. That they are not of the world in the same way that Jesus is not of the world. That needs to be unpacked. What? How can it be said of us that we are not of the world in the same way that Jesus is not of the world? Answer is, it's his relationship to the truth of God's word. Look with me at John chapter 17. Starting at verse 14. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse 15. I do not ask to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Repeated. Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. Jesus was uniquely committed to the truth of God. He spoke the truth of God. He believed the truth of God. He lived out the truth of God. And in that sense, we are not of the world as he is. Not of the world. We have the truth of God. We believe the word of God. We speak the word of God. So that the difference is a real Genuine, legitimate difference. It is not an artificial difference. Many people, when they think about not being worldly, think about it in artificial senses. It's not a difference that consists in a uniqueness of dress. It is not because we all wear black or we all drive black cars. Jesus did not wear black. Jesus did not wear a black, uh, drive a black car, but yet we are to be not of the world in the same way that Jesus was. It's to be similar to the way in which Jesus lived his life. And the way in which he lived his life is significant for us. I'll unpack that in just a moment. It is a uniqueness that results from having the Word of God, believing the Word of God, and living out the Word of God. A real difference. Notice verse 17. Sanctify them. Set them apart. Through thy truth, thy word is truth. What makes us different Different is the truth. Set them apart. Make them distinct. By your truth. That's our distinctiveness. It is our commitment to the Word of God. Notice verse 15. Couldn't be more specific. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, 
but thou shouldst keep them from the evil. Jesus says, I'm not praying that you would take them off the face of this earth. I'm going, they're staying. And I'm not praying that you take them now to be with me. That's not what I'm asking for. And he's not asking that we be separated from the world. We are not, as Christians, to be immediately translated into heavenly realms. And as Christians, we are not really to be trying to establish heaven here on earth. Nor are we to establish Christian communes in which we shut ourselves off from the peoples of this world. That's not what we're asked to do. The separation that is to be manifested is to be to be kept from evil or the evil one. Verse 15. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Some translate that the evil one. It could be the evil in general or the evil one. But let's look at this practically. What is going to keep us from evil? There, there, there is no more practical question when you're rearing children as to, to that. What is the solution? How are you going to keep your children from the influence of evil? And how are you going to keep yourself from the influence of evil? How are you going to keep yourself preserved from the evil one? Satan is like a roaring lion seeking we may devour. How are you going to preserve yourself from satanic influence and all the evil that's manifest in this world? How are you going to do it? Well, the answer comes in this prayer. The answer comes in the request that Jesus makes. So how does he do it? Well, first and foremost, through prayer. This is a prayer. That Jesus is praying to his heavenly Father. A prayer in which he commits them to the Father's care. He prays and asks for God to protect them and watch over them. Lesson. The first and most beneficial way in which we can protect our children is to pray for them and ask God to watch over them and to keep them. It may sound trite, but it's powerful. And that's what we need to do. Pray for our children. God, watch over them, keep them. You love them, they belong to you. You are yours. You can be trusted. Guard and keep my children. Guard and keep my life. Prayer. And the second is the Word of God. Notice verse 16. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse 17. Sanctify them. Set them apart in the truth. Thy Word is truth. Verse 19. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. So Jesus set himself apart to the truth, so that we, in turn, would be set apart to the truth. So the second way in which we are preserved and preserve our children is in teaching them, imparting in them, instilling in them a love for and adherence to the truth of God's word. 
That is constant in the Word of God. Psalm 119. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? Answer, by taking heed thereto according to your word. How is a young man going to live righteously? By adhering to the word of God. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law doth he meditate day and night. He should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. It's the word of God. It's the word of God. Jesus is the primary example of being sanctified through prayer and the word of God. That's how Jesus was not a part of this world. That's how he lived, quote unquote, the victorious Christian life. Do you remember that first series of temptations that Jesus encountered? The evil one came to destroy him. The evil one came to undo him. The evil one came with temptations. Turn this bread into stone. Cast yourself down from this mountain. Bow unto me, and I'll give you all the kings of the earth. Remember that? How did Jesus respond to those temptations? It is written. It is written. It is written. Jesus knew and applied the truth of God's word, and it kept him. Jesus says, sanctify them in thy truth, thy word is truth. That's the protection. Here is Satan's folly. Satan's folly is, we protect our children by isolating them. We protect our children by taking them out of this world. Disassociating from the world. The world over here, our children over here, and we'll keep them safe. That's Satan's lie. That's false. And I'll tell you why. First reason now, second reason later. The first reason now is because there is no example of that in the Word of God. When Jesus was tested, when Jesus was tempted, where was he? Someone tell me where he was. In the wilderness. Who was with him? No one. No one. The scribes and Pharisees found fault with Jesus because he associated himself with the world. They found fault with Jesus because he ate with the tax collectors and sinners. Remember? The Pharisees said, Jesus, you don't have any business being with them. Because the thought of the day was, if you associate with those people, you're going to be sinful. You don't associate from them, you won't be sinful. Well, there were no tax collectors and sinners in the wilderness. But it didn't keep Jesus from being tempted. And that lesson has been learned down through the centuries, down through the ages. You come down to Martin Luther, who was in a monastery in order to flee temptation, who lived in isolation, who, sat, who slept on a stone pillar 
All in an attempt to overcome the sin in his life. And then Martin Luther came to understand the truth. The just shall live by faith. And he left the monastery and went out into the world and lived his life for the honor and glory of God. Jesus overcame sin through prayer and adherence to the Word of God. And that's how we are going to overcome sin as well. Because notice the next one, the last one. What is the relationship of the disciples to the world? The disciples are to be engaged in and minister to the world. Look at verse 18. As thou didst send me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. I would submit to you that most often the emphasis is, As thou didst send me, I also did send them. As thou didst send me into the world. So also I send them into the world. This morning, I want to put the emphasis someplace else. As thou hast to send me into the world. So I have sent them into the world. Unless you think thou have the emphasis wrong. Galatians 4. Then when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Listen to the words of John 1.14. And I know that you can finish it. So, John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you understand the importance of that? God sent His Son, into the world to live among us. To dwell with us. To eat with us. To cure us. To help us. To be with us. It wasn't the world in Jesus. It wasn't Jesus living somewhere else and trying to somehow affect this world. It was Jesus in the world. And the emphasis is that we are to be in the world. And again, lest you think the emphasis is wrong, Think of the Great Commission. You know it. All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go. Where? Into all the world. Go to this world. Go to this people. Go to affect A fallen generation. We need to be on guard. 
That's the third point. Don't be overcome by evil. Father, guard them. Keep them. Sanctify them. Set them apart by thy truth. But in being separated from the truth, don't take them out of this world. Don't separate them from the peoples of this world. Guard them. Preserve them from the evil of this world. But send them to the peoples of this world. So, we are sent as he is sent. So, how is he sent? Well, we're not born of a virgin the way he was born of a virgin. But there is a similarity in our being sent. Here are four ways. First, we're sent to speak the word of God as Jesus was. John 3.34 For even God has sent speaks the words of God. He whom God has sent speaks the words of God. So we're to go into this world speaking the words of God. We are to be going everywhere, wherever we find ourselves, wherever we live, whomever we come in contact with, intentionally, intentionally being with non-believers in order to speak the word of God. Secondly, we are sent to accomplish the work of God as Jesus was. John 4.34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food, my substance, my well-being is determined by accomplishing the will of him who sent me. So we are to be doing the Father's will here on earth. Third, we are sent to bring people to God as Jesus was. John 5:24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. He who believes the one who sent me. We are to create faith. Not that we are able to actually instill faith, but we are to express God's truth so that people will come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is the fourth and last. We are sent to bear witness of God as Jesus was. John 5.36, But the witness which I have is greater than that of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. For to bear witness of the Father. So, application. We are to go to people. We are not to wait for them to come to us. We are to go to people, we are not to wait for them to come to us. Most Christians have it backwards. Most Christians try to get non-Christians to come to us. Most churches try to attract non-Christians and try to get them in these walls to hear the gospel. Won't you come to church? Won't you come to this evangelistic meeting? Won't you come to this prayer breakfast? Won't you come to be with me? Won't you get a plane ticket? And leave Africa and come over here. Won't you come? At work, won't you come and ask me how to be saved? Won't you come and ask what difference is there in my life? How can I get non-Christians to come to me? We got it backwards. We're to go to them. 
We're to take the gospel outside of the church. The great revivals have come when the word of God was taken out of the church. Whitfield. Think of that marvelous preacher who preached in the countryside. Who took the word of God to the streets. Think of a Moody. They said that George Whitfield had such a voice that you could hear George Whitfield preach four blocks away. That was in a time in which there were no amplification systems. And towards the end of his life, George Whitfield, every time he was done preaching, was spitting up blood. Because it was so hard on his vocal cords. He got done preaching, he spit up blood. But he was taking the word of God to this world. We must take the word of God to the world. And we preserve our children not by taking them out of the world, isolating them, have nothing to do with those fallen, wicked people. We preserve them through prayer and careful instruction in the word of God so they know how to answer, so they know how to live, so they know how to respond, so they know how to witness, so they know how to win over, so they know how to bring someone to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that they can influence them rather than having them influence our children. Just remember, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Just remember, Martin Luther didn't know how to overcome sin as he sat in a monastery cell all by himself. Satan wins. If we think we will preserve ourselves or our children externally, it has to be internally through prayer and the Word of God. But this passage is much more than just about preserving the disciples. It's much more than just keep these 11 men safe. It's about making these 11 men victorious. So the gospel goes into all the world. It's about these 11 men reaching the world that is here. Why are they left here? Why does Jesus go and say, I pray that they remain and they stay here? Why? Why are we here? Why doesn't God just, as soon as we are saved, rapture us up to be with him? Why are we here? We are here to reach a fallen mankind. That's our purpose. That's why we're left. To be sent into the world. That is Jesus' prayer. Is it any wonder that he says, I'm praying for them, I'm not praying for the world. That's a unique task to us. That's a unique privilege to us. That's a unique benefit to us. We get to take the gospel to our workplace. We get to take the gospel to our school. We get to take the gospel across the street. We get to take the gospel across the country. We get to take the gospel around the world. 
Because we're sent into this world. Because all authority and all has been given to Jesus. And we're to make disciples of all people. Let's pray. Our Father, help us this day. As we think about the world. And as we think about worldliness. Guard us, O God. That we do not have the mind of the Pharisee. Who found fault with Jesus. Because he ate with tax collectors and sinners. Who spent their days. In trying to be separate from. Aloof from. A fallen world. Who found fault with Jesus. Because he went to the maimed and crippled. Doing the works of good deeds. And they actually hated Jesus. Because they viewed his lifestyle as a threat to theirs. Oh God, may we begin by loving you. And may we love your word. And in loving you and loving your word, may we be protected from this world's evil. Lord, we we pray for the intervention of of the Holy Spirit in the lives of our children, our grandchildren, our loved ones, our sisters, our brothers, and even ourselves. Oh God, keep us by your name. And we know that you are righteous, we know that you are holy, and we know that no one is able to snatch snatch us out of your hand. So, oh God, preserve us and keep us. And may we pray that regularly. Oh Lord, you're going to keep us and preserve us from your word. Help us to know your word. Help us to long for your word. Help us to understand your word. Help us to be able to apply your word. And Lord, help us to be able to teach your word and reveal your word to others. For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Lord, may we go into this world believing your word, trusting your word, speaking your word, teaching your word, living your word, so that your word might be manifest in the hearts and lives of all we come in contact with. Oh, Lord, we are not of this world. We belong to you. You have taken us out of this world by making us uniquely joined to you. But we're in this world. We live in this fallen place. And you have placed us here. And you have left us here. But in this world, we're not to be of this world. There's to be a difference. Not a contrived difference. But a real, genuine difference. As a people who are committed to your truth and to your word. And then, oh God, you have sent us into the world. May we be willing to go. May we be willing to trust you. May we take your word to people who have not heard and tell them the good news of the plan of salvation. And may you be be pleased, O God, to bring others to yourself. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.